0: to have birds that were living at high altitude planting uh-huh. their seeds over a three by four, yes. four mile area. Um, do we get a fringe benefit out of that? Do trees grow as a result of their planting?
1: Whatever they do not find or do not need to find will have a chance to grow into new trees. So yes, absolutely. The, the seeds that they are planting, if they fail to find them or if they die or if uh, they uh, leave any because they had too much, um, then those seeds will be extra and will grow into new trees. So absolutely they do. So
0: they're natural reforesters?
1: Yes, they are natural reforester, reforesters helping to plant new seeds wherever they go. Yes.
0: I have heard it said that animals that have never come in contact with people don't show the same level of fear, Mm -hmm. um, have you
1: observed this at all? Okay, the question, I'm going to be needing to repeat questions for the recording, um, is the animals that don't have a lot of contact with people, do they not show as much fear as those that do? Um, Absolutely true. Um, animals become very used to people and know that they need to flee from them in places in which they need to flee from them. And so the animals in remote areas uh, oftentimes do not have the same fear levels that uh, the, uh, that animals in heavily populated areas do. This has been demonstrated on island areas that have never had any contact with people, as well as remote areas that only recently people have gotten into and found different things that, uh, uh, that they never knew were there before. Now, this is not always true. I mean, there are some animals that are always afraid of people, and there are some animals that are never afraid of people. But in terms of the averages, yes, it is very true. In back.
0: that baby pigeons are not seen until they fly. Never nobody ever sees baby pigeons. Okay. Not only that, but the mother and the father both have the milk to feed mm-hmm. baby
1: pigeons. Yes. Okay, the question is about baby pigeons. Are they seen before they fly? That report that they are not and also that the uh, parents feed the milk. All right, I can't speak to the first part of that because I've I've never heard uh, specifically about that, that they're hidden until they come out. Um, But I can speak to the second part of that because uh, what they do is they have a very specific thing, fruit doves, Pigeons, rock doves all have something in their throat. They're called a crop area that they are actually able to produce a white milky nutritious fluid that the babies will then reach into their mouth and drink from. And it is called milk, even though it's not the same milk as what a mammal is producing with mammary glands, but in fact is is appearance superficially similar to uh, that milk and is therefore called milk. But it is a baby diet. It's for the baby chicks to be able to drink, and only these pigeons, um, a variety of different species, have the ability to produce this particular type of milk. So yes, that is actually very true. First part, I can't say for sure one or the other, but uh, it may well be true.
2: Do crows have the same memory uh, in finding seeds that they vary, like seeds from fan palm trees, for instance, mm-hmm. and you find the palm trees growing up in various places where you say, I didn't plant that. Yeah. Do they have the same memory of finding those seeds, or did they just forget about them?
1: Okay, the question is, do crows have the ability to remember planting seeds that they have uh, stashed here and there? Um, They do have a good memory, and they actually uh, have been demonstrated to have very high intelligence and memory capabilities. Um, Also, jays, these are all from the same family. Um, Clark's netcrackers are actually relatives of crows and jays. They're actually from the same big family. Ravens as well. And so all of these birds do have very high intelligence and ability to remember where these various stores are. But nobody remembers everything perfectly. And so there's always a few that slip through the cracks, or like I said, you know, if a bird dies and it's not going to be able to collect the food it's stored and whatnot. And so there's a variety of different reasons that they would not be able to find their particular stores. Yes, the crows and ravens are super intelligent. They can actually solve very difficult problems that where they've actually done New Caledonian crow studies um, down in the South Seas where the crows are able to find a long stick that allows them to get inside this cage and remove a small stick which allows them to get over to this other cage to remove an edible piece of meat that they wanted to eat. And they're able to think it out and plan out the whole process that they've never seen before this particular puzzle. And they have very amazing abilities to solve problems like that. They'll, solve, they'll also
2: talk and mm-hmm. they'll mimic
1: sounds yes.
2: like a minor bird does and they bark like a
1: dog. Yes. Like that, that um, crows have amazing inc- ability to mimic and, and speak different, various words and whatnot. Yes.
0: Just a brief comment on the point that someone made from behind. If you go to the Galapagos Islands and you get out of the populated areas and stop on the path, the birds come and try to untie your <laughs> shoes. <laughs>
1: yes, that's true. I've read about that.
0: And my question on, I missed the morning presentation. Okay. Have you made any comments regarding the uh, situation of the animals before and after the fall?
1: Uh, I have not talked about that yet. That will be in the next meeting. Okay.
0: Years ago, I read a a description of a mating ritual, a type of weasel, I believe. The male um, basically savages the female to the point of unconsciousness before Mm he mates. And when I read this, I was not a Christian nor an Adventist, and it made me really wonder about, what kind of God creates something like this? Mm -hmm. It it sounded really
2: cruel.
1: Yes. Can you... Okay. Um, okay, the question is, some mating practices, such as weasels, where it is a very savage process that doesn't seem anything that ever would result from God's way of doing things. Now, the reality of that is, no, that's not God's way of doing things, and that is definitely a product of sin. When we look at some of the really uh, 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 vicious types of mating behaviors we see a lot of products of the fact that this is a twisted world and things are not the way they're supposed to be. That would never have been that way in the New Earth, I mean in the Eden and that sort of thing. And it is a function of the fact that nothing is quite the way it's supposed to be. Some are worse than others. There, I could list a few species besides that in varieties of different animals where it's not a pleasant process that these guys reproduce and, and, and do other things as well. And so it is true that that is definitely a product of the sin Uh, the the fall of of humankind, the fall, the Adam's fall, that nothing is quite right the way it's supposed to be in the original garden. And so, yeah, that is definitely not something that should be that way.
0: Uh, You mentioned that uh, some animals, as they lose their habitat, will Mm -hmm. cease to exist. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have always wondered about the prehistoric, Mm we call the prehistoric animals. Yeah. Did they cease to exist because of loss of habitat, or were they destroyed at the flood? Mm-hmm. Because evidence seems to indicate that they once lived. Uh, what do you attribute to their demise to?
1: Okay, and the question is, what about prehistoric animals that we do not have alive anymore? Why did they die out? Um, the uh, there's, there's a variety of different reasons for this. The... Uh, Ones that were too large to fit in the ark obviously didn't fit in the ark. When you look at some of the giant dinosaurs and whatnot that had no possibility of fitting into an ark and traveling in that sort of situation, um, there's no way they could do that. And Ellen White talks about that a little bit about the giant animals that uh, man couldn't control any longer because he was shrinking in size as well that uh, we could not have transported through the ark and there was just no way of doing it. And so there's a lot of animals that died at the flood that really never existed after that. And so there is a lot of that that is definitely a reality. However, there's a lot of big animals that did make it through the ark. We have a lot of, of records of animals that were not killed in flood conditions, but that were killed in tar pits and in the ice, which would be after the, after the flood, and various different situations, which are definitely post-flood causes of death. The La Brea Tar Pits right near here are actually a perfect example of animals that were post-flood because they would not have been in those conditions pre-flood. And so those are animals that did make it through the ark that are no longer alive, like saber-toothed cats, mastodons, various different animals like that. So there's a lot of these animals that did spread out after the flood to the various corners of the earth that then died out later from a variety of causes. When we look at the large mammal extinctions that took place in the post-flood world, we find one very important thing in common. And this is true of large mammals as well as large birds. There were very large, gigantic elephant birds on islands and various places in South America and whatnot called thunderbirds. And all of these animals died out at a very specific time in history. And that was when people showed up. When people crossed the land bridge into North America, the large mammals died out. When they crossed into South America, the large mammals and birds died out. When they crossed into Australia, the large mega marsupials that we have no even close representative of today, all died out. All of these large animals could not survive underneath the withering assault that early man made as they spread throughout all the four corners of the globe. And so there are a lot of animals that just were killed to extinction. And we find their spear points amongst the bodies in various places where these animals were alive at the time that people got there, but then died out very soon after. And so a lot of these animals were killed off by us. There are a few cases of animals dying out through natural extinctions, and usually on an island situation or a limited habitat situation where an animal dies out because of changing weather conditions, changing climate, various natural disasters, they had a limited range, they get wiped out. That is not true of most animals. Most animals will be able to move, survive, adapt, and be able to function into a new habitat. So we don't have very many examples of natural extinctions taking place. In the last 500 years, we have exterminated so many animals from the planet's surface through our direct action or our indirect action that we have now a list of 1,000 species long, our endangered species list, as well as hundreds of species that went extinct before that. We even had a chance to put them on. So when we look at the prehistoric animals, we have a variety of reasons they died out. Some died out at the flood, some died out after the flood due to man's intervention, and then many died out recently due to man's very much large-scale destruction of the habitat around us. But so there's a variety of different reasons for that. They all definitely existed. We have bone structures, we have fossil records of a lot of these prehistoric animals, so they were there. And so the question becomes, what killed them? And it's a variety of answers to that question. All right. Okay. I
2: have a question I recently read on the internet that they're cataloging um, new species in Madagascar and also the rainforest. Um there's a fellow that said he's they've been going into areas they've never been and discovering Mm all these species they've never cataloged before and they don't have names for them. Is that
1: true? Yes, it is. Okay, the question is, are new species still being discovered in remote parts of the world? And it's absolutely true, um, especially in the small-scale invertebrate animals. There are still being a few mammals, a few monkeys, a few deer in remote jungle areas still being discovered. And so that, you know, over in Vietnam, they recently, 10 years ago, discovered some very large animals that nobody knew was hiding in the jungle but when it comes to large-scale animal discoveries. It's mostly in the insect world, the spider world, that sort of thing. And honestly, we still haven't barely scratched the surface in some of those places. There is so much diversity of insect and invertebrate life in jungle rainforest ecosystems where nobody's ever been that if you are a scientist in, let's say, moths, and you enter this new patch, you're going to be coming out of there with 200 species of moths that nobody's ever seen before. And so there's just incredible diversity, radiation of animals that have adapted to every little nook and cranny and and niche that they can possibly fit into that are still out there to be discovered, and uh, that their scientists are still doing that to this day. All right, we're just going to take a couple more because we don't want to go too late. If there's anybody else,
0: I've heard on a talk show that birds spread the wings is even. Less. Larger than, than, uh, than, uh, than an airplane.
1: Have you heard about that Oh, okay. I've never heard of a bird that large. Um, there, have been, um, there have been reptiles that large. Um, there have been uh, pterodactyl reptiles uh, that were definitely pre flood, That uh, Quetzalcoatl, I think, was, uh, no, that's not quite right. I forget the exact species name of that one, but uh, it was about 20, 30 feet wide wingspan which was about the longest wingspan of any flying creature ever discovered. Uh, Now that is probably slightly longer than some small airplanes, but in terms of a giant jumbo jet, you're not going to have any bird or any other creature that's actually going to be a longer wingspan than that. It was very interesting when they did studies on this particular reptile that uh, was flying around. They actually built a scale model, I mean an exact replica, one to one scale model of this particular reptile and they motorized it so that it would flap its wings and glide and all this kind of stuff and they took it down to Texas where they built it and they flew the creature through the air but it didn't fly extremely well it was it was a man-made construction What they basically figured out it was that it's too heavy to fly and there's no way it can possibly fly but it kind of is able to glide and so this kind of thing However, if we look at the pre-flood uh, conditions of this world and the higher oxygen atmosphere content of the pre-flood world that almost certainly existed, we actually can increase the ability of these animals to be able to support themselves. The higher oxygen content means their muscles are able to work better and using that extra ability they could fly just fine. And so is actually another indication that evolution doesn't give a good answer for but that a flood model does. In the back
2: you just said that uh, some animals died because they couldn't adapt to a climate condition Mm -hmm. i was wondering how the animals adapted to the very very
1: cold temperature Mm All right, the question is, how did animals adapt to cold weather after the flood when cold conditions began to kick in? All right, so before the flood, there's no ice sheet on the Arctic or the Antarctic because you're not going to have those kind of super cold conditions. The temperature is much more equal across the Earth's surface, even though it's going to be slightly cooler toward the north and south. But anyway, after the flood now, ice begins to kick in. Ice fields start to grow. The atmosphere becomes clouded with Volcanic eruptions, so you're now having a much cooler temperature of the planet And so all of these different things combine to allow a lot of ice to grow across the surface of the world Now at that point now you're let out the animals out of the ark They're spreading across the continents. They're moving around and the perfect example of this is the polar bear Now if you look at a polar bear, it's a big bear. It's all white. It's got white fur And it is really closely related to grizzly bears in a lot of important genetic respects and so when you take a bear that's wandering north it's going generation by generation a little bit farther north each year adapting to this colder climate as it moves farther north it's actually now beginning to adapt its body it's slightly changing enough now this is not evolution in the term of a bird evolving from a dinosaur this is a an animal called microevolution changing just a few minor parts of it to adapt to little niches to allow it to fit in and so as it's going it's slightly changing enough so that it can survive in cold weather its fur turns white its skin turns black so that the white fur is actually transmitting the white uh, the the sunlight to its skin so that it can be very warm and so it's able to adapt to this very cold conditions of the arctic that, that that existed after the flood Now what's interesting is now the temperatures are warming and ice is melting and now all of a sudden grizzly bears are moving farther north into places they've never been and the polar bears are coming in contact with them in places that they've never come in contact with grizzly bears such as Alaska. And at that point now we're finding polar bears are mating with grizzly bears and they're producing fertile offspring. And there are these half-white, half-brown bears that are kind of just kind of this grayish color. And they are now this hybrid form of these two different mixtures. And so as an example of now as they're coming back now, and they're, they're starting to change into a different type of bear. And so as a very good example of the way animals will adapt themselves to different conditions. It takes several generations, hundreds of years, but they will adapt themselves to various conditions that will now be available or not available. However, when you become too specialized, and this is the problem of a lot of animals, they cannot adapt quickly enough to fastly, accelerated changes. If you're an island bird and you have lost your power to fly you're not going to be able to survive when a predator is put on that island because he's going to eat all the birds. And if you're go- if you are living in a place where you're specifically tuned to a certain temperature you're not going to be able to adapt very quickly. And so this is where we get a lot of the animal extinctions that are taking place now because they're just not able to adapt quickly enough to our modern changes which are basically occurring in 100 years, 200, 300 years at most and it's not enough time for these animals to adapt.
2: Some scientists have proposed that the dinosaurs were actually beautiful birds with lots of plumes um, and they were herbivores. Uh, What do you think of
1: that ideology? Okay, the question is, were dinosaurs, um, birds, feathered, whatnot? This has become the hot favorite topic of evolutionary scientists because they've been looking for a long time for the missing links between Birds and reptiles. Supposedly all birds evolved from reptiles according to evolutionary theory. Now, to back this up, they had Areopteryx, which is this reptile dinosaur with feathers. It has a beak with teeth, so it's still a reptile. It has got wings, sort of, but he can't fly. And so he's the missing link. But this never really caught on because all the ornithologists knew it wasn't really the transition animal. This was not something that they was really that good an answer for. And so this was kind of, Held there in reserve is our one missing link that we could use as an evolutionist to show that this is possible. Recently in China, they've been finding a whole pile of dinosaur skeletons covered with these downy feather-like filaments. They're not really feathers, but they're being claimed to be proto feathers by the evolutionists. Now the question is, were they covered with down? Well, yes, you can see it in the fossil record. Was this a feather? No, it's not. Could they fly? No. And so to call them birds is a very misleading and accurate uh, misdirection tactic of evolutionists these days because they're wanting you to think that they have found all the missing links they ever need to prove that birds evolved from dinosaurs. And that's not, in fact, the case. When we look at these guys, we're looking at downy, feathery, sort of. Reptiles. They couldn't fly, they weren't a bird, but they were a very specific type of animal that were able to function in this way. If we follow this line of reasoning by saying because certain dinosaurs had feathers and therefore must be leading to birds, then we also have to say that pterodactyls were leading to mammals because we have found in the fossil records of pterodactyls fur covering the bodies of these pterodactyls. And therefore, since fur is a distinctive characteristic of mammals and therefore must be part of a mammal, therefore pterodactyls must be part of the evolution of mammals. And no evolutionist wants to say that. And so they use those parts of the fossil record that they think can back up what they're saying when they completely ignore other aspects of the fossil record that in fact say exactly the same thing. When we look at a pterodactyl, we see a furry reptile. When we look at an areopteryx, we see a feathered reptile. And these are not birds, and to call them birds is a very misleading tactic on their part.
0: Could
1: you the and I I to, you know, oh, sure. The ones in Isaiah, um, there's a number of them, but the ones that specifically lists uh, animals are found in Isaiah 11, verses 6 to 8, and Isaiah 65, verse 25. All right, down here. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead over there. I
2: have a question
1: about dinosaurs. Okay. (laughs) I get asked that a lot.
2: no longer
1: serve that purpose: OK. The question is, what about the dinosaurs? Where did they come from? What is their purpose? And when did, why did they die off in the, in the flood? What's the, what was going on with that? Now this is something I don't present as a regular topic like what we've been dealing with here, because this is a lot slimmer evidence, and this is more supposition because there isn't really any good evidence one way or the other. I mean, there's no proof what you want to say with this. But uh, I have looked at dinosaurs a lot. It's actually one of my areas of interest, along with all other life on this planet. I have looked at dinosaur um, evidence to see what it can teach us. And uh, dinosaurs are extremely well-built creatures. They're extremely well-designed creatures. They are not a lumbering, um, awkward creature that uh, early scientists thought they were when they first started recreating skeletons back in the 1860s and 70s and made them out to be these very bulky creatures. They're actually fast moving. They're well built. They have jaw structures which are as well designed as any jaw structure of modern animals. They have sail fins on their back that radiate heat. They are able to fly. They're able to do all sorts of deep swimming. So you got a lot of different variety of dinosaurs and a lot of different specialization of dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. So, to start with, dinosaurs are not badly built. And so, that's one thing that for me indicates that God built them. I don't believe that they were a breeding program of the antediluvians because antediluvians, what are they going to breed? A lizard with an elephant and come up with a brontosaurus? How's that going to work exactly? And so, what anything that humans would come up with would be so awkward and clumsy that these dinosaurs do not fit those criteria. So, that's my first indication as to maybe what's going on when it comes to the um, dinosaurs. Second of all, when we look at the dinosaurs, we find they are not all meat eaters. I mean, when you watch Jurassic Park, everybody's being eaten by a dinosaur. But in reality, most dinosaurs were herbivores, just like most animals on earth are herbivores. When you look at the percentage of any given ecosystem of plant eaters to meat eaters, it's about 80, 85 to 15, 20 percent, which are most are plant eaters and a few are meat eaters and that's usually the general rough average. Whether it's an insect population, a mammal population, whatever, it doesn't matter. The majority of animals are plant eaters and that's how the ecosystem balances. When we look at the dinosaur fossils and what we've been able to find, the majority of them are plant eaters. Most of them are brontosauruses, ankylosauruses, triceratops, various different kinds, stegosauruses. All of these are plant eaters and only a few Uh, groups of them which are a lot of the famous ones like tyrannosaurus and and uh, velociraptor and various ones like that have the ability to go out and kill their prey and eat it themselves. But when you look at it, it's about the same percentage as the ecosystems today. About the same percentage are plant eaters, about the same percentage are meat eaters. So that's evidence number two for me, that a lot of these animals are in fact created, just like the rest of the animals were created. Were they created vegetarian? Yes, absolutely. They would have been created vegetarian Tyrannosauruses, and at the time of the fall, they would have been changed just like a shark, just like a um, tiger, just like a kitty cat. Whatever animal that is now a predator would then be changed in the same way, a certain percentage in order to balance out the system. So I believe firmly that dinosaurs were created by God in the same way that all of the predators, herbivores were created by God, were changed at the time of the fall. And then after 1,500, 1,600 years of existence in a very different atmospheric condition, which supported large-scale creatures, large-scale animals which could fly, which would not be the case now, the time of the flood comes, the atmospheric conditions are shattered, And now, after the flood, these animals have a very difficult time surviving, especially in the changing climate after the fall and that sort of thing. So now, at this point, the dinosaurs can't survive in a post-flood world. Is there any reason to put them on an ark when they can't survive? Number one, they're too big. Number two, they're not going to make it anyway. Number three, they can't be controlled as easily because humans are shrinking, 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 and the dinosaurs are saying the same. And so all of these reasons indicate to me that they died out at the time of the flood because they no longer could survive in a much reduced, much damaged world after the flood existed. And so I hold that most of them died by natural causes by the time of the flood. They were drowned and that was the end of almost all the dinosaurs. Now, if you want to get into whether or not there's a Mokole Mbembe in the middle of the Congo and it's actually a brontosaurus, or whether or not there's uh, pterodactyls flying around in China, I refuse to speculate on any of that stuff. That's cryptozool- cryptozoology, that's not my field, and so if you want to talk about that, that's fine, but I will not get into that myself.
0: So, and that after the fall, evidently God could, could uh, since the desires of man change from being obedient, also he could allow some animals to have different desires for meat. Mm-hmm. And perhaps when, when earth is restored, you know, to to the second Eden, that maybe those desires from those animals who were predators will be changed also.
1: Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's that's a very good summation of, of what I am trying to present here. Yep. All right, we're working our way up there. Thank
0: you.
1: Yeah, thank you.
2: Of the mushroom. You see, the mushroom uh, grows in the uh, decayed stuff, mm-hmm. and it doesn't belong to vegetable or
1: either fruit. That's right. Is it edible? Ah, okay. Um, depends on who you talk to. Um, <laughs> uh, whether or not mushrooms are edible or not are a source of widely differing opinions. Um, there are some mushrooms. like I said, it is not. It is not a plant. I mean, it is not a plant. It's a separate category. It's 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 just totally different in every way, down to its cellular structure. Um, whether or not it's edible or not, some species of mushroom are deadly poisonous to us. Um, the same mushroom which we can chew into and it'll kill us in a day or less, maybe a few hours, an animal can go off and eat. It's perfectly edible to many animals. The slug is eating a mushroom which would be poisonous to us and so I mean it's it's it depends on the species so each species reacts differently and this is one thing I got into in my animals and ethics sermon how every animal is reacting differently to various substances put into their body which is why vivisection animal experimentation is garbage because everything you do to a particular animal to test a drug or test a product is going to be only applicable to that particular animal and it will not be applicable to us or any other animal that we want to give it to So each animal reacts differently to these various processes and a mushroom which is poisonous to us will be edible to other animals and that's a major source of food for a lot of animals. A lot of animals eat eat fungus. But there are certain ones that are edible to us. We can eat them. We can then not be damaged by them. Some will make us sick. Some will make us kind of queasy. Some will make individual people sick when they won't make other people sick. And so there's a lot of different variation with uh, fungus mushrooms that uh, cause us weird problems. And so some mushrooms, it's like, don't eat it because it has made some people sick. Um, The very interesting thing about it is apparently we don't digest mushrooms. It goes through our system, it tastes good, it goes into our stomach and we don't digest it because our system, our digestive system is built to digest plant material, which we were looking at is made up of cellulose. It's not designed to digest chitin, which is what makes up a fungus. And so when we are actually eating a fungus, it's basically just going right through us. We're not getting a lot of nutrient content from it. We're not getting a lot of uh, great deal of benefit from it, even if it doesn't harm us. So is it edible? Um, It depends on your definition of edible, and it depends on whether or not you want to say that it's not part of the original Garden of Eden diet, which it was not because it didn't exist yet, and whether or not it's something now that we should be eating or not. I'm not going to pass judgment on anybody, pro or con. You're going to have to decide that for yourself, whether you consider it something worthy of being eaten or worthy of not being eaten. I mean, they taste great. They are very nice for those people that like them. And so uh, it's really, I, 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 I put forth the scientific information. You can make your own choice whether or not they're edible from your own study from that point forward. <laughs>
2: Thank you. Um, I was wondering if you had ever heard of um, a carnivore, no, an herbivore, whose um, food source was depleted, which then became a carnivore in order to survive, mm. and then perhaps the food source came back, and then it became an herbivore
1: again. That's a very interesting question, and I'm going to repeat it for the um, <laughs> the recording here. The question is whether or not an herbivore forced under natural conditions to uh, when it lost all its food supply became carnivorous and then when the food supply was restored it went back to being an uh, herbivorous animal Uh, very interesting question and i'm trying to think here of any example that might fit that pattern i would say that i know of no vegetarian animal that is totally vegetarian that can switch back and forth between that kind of a diet Um, there are animals like bears, which can eat either one. And so a bear can go out there. And and the first thing bears eat when they come out of hibernation is all the grass they can find. And I've actually watched them up in uh, British Columbia doing that when it just emerged from hibernation. He was just grazing by the side of the road like any kind of a uh, a sheep or elk you want to see. And so that's actually one of their first food sources is vegetation. They're eating the berries when it comes to the fall. They're eating a lot of plant material throughout the entire year. And then when it comes time for them to eat an animal, they'll go catch a, uh, you know, a grizzly bear will go catch a baby elk or a baby deer or whatever and eat that. And then the grizzly bear will climb the mountain in a certain time of year in Yellowstone National Park and they will eat thousands and thousands of moths that are hiding underneath rocks. And so they will just gorge themselves on moths. And so you hear have this giant grizzly turning over rocks and licking off all the moths, moths that are underneath the rocks. And that's a huge source of fat reserves because they're so full of fat, these little moths, that they bulk up the uh, bears uh, eating for that two-week period when they're eating moths and help them get ready for hibernation. So there's a lot of these animals which will switch back and forth their whole lives. But when it comes to a vegetarian animal, a, um, a deer, a, a rabbit, um, any kind of pure vegetarian animal that always eats vegetarian food, when the food goes away, they don't change. They die. It, it, I, I can think of no example of a purely vegetarian animal that never recovers um, from a, a food depletion. And this is why we have mass starvation of animals all across the world, wherever the predators have been knocked out. Um, I, can think of no, I can think of no instance where an animal, which is a totally vegetarian animal, can switch and then recover itself back later. So I can say no to that question. Well, humans, (laughs) humans are, yeah, that's right. Humans uh, would be an example of perhaps of that sort of thing. Um, The uh, chimpanzees, which we always assumed were vegetarians, have found, we found they're major meat eaters. They actually go and hunt other monkeys and various things. They're actually major consumers of meat as well. Gorillas are total vegetarians. They only eat plants all their life. And if their food source went away, would they switch to a, uh, a meat eating diet? We have no evidence that they ever have in any kind of example to point to. So I know of no example where that has actually happened in the natural world. All right, I don't know who has the microphone up there.
2: Well, first of all, um, I come from a dairy background, mm-hmm. and dairy cows kept in pins who don't have any uh, grass to eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the farmer has, is desperate for low cost food, it has been known that they give them ground-up parts of other animals, mm-hmm. and yes. also that's what led possibly to that cow disease. But when they're let out in the pasture, again, they eat uh, okay. the grass. So yeah. I, I don't know. That's a fix. And, and it's not 100% ground-up mm-hmm. uh, old animals that are fed to them, but they have been known to get... Um, uh, ground
1: of animals in their feed. Yeah. Well, I, is that your question? Or no, okay, question let is, me let me actually address that before you ask your question because this is actually totally true what you just said. Um, and is actually very prevalent amongst um, various dairy and um, and meat industry factory farming conditions today where actually a lot of this stuff that's being fed to cows is full of chickens, fish, Um, other animals that they are uh, doing it in fact that's one of the main uses of all these little fish that they are not sellable to people for food they scoop them up grind them up into this mush turn them into this uh, diet this protein diet and then they force feed it to the captive animals whether it's chickens or pigs or or cows whatever but the question really is is um are the cows volunteering to eat that food? If you put a dead fish in front of a cow, would he eat it? If you put a dead animal in front of the cow, would he voluntarily eat it? And the answer is no. He would never do it if it wasn't part of the food that you're tricking him with, basically, by putting it in there. In fact,
2: they pour some kind of syrup over
1: Yeah. That's right. They trick them into making them think it's something that tastes good and they eat it and that in fact is pretty much certainly where the mad cow originally came from because it was the uh, brain tissue of other animals being fed to these cows that started to get this whole process started and get it going to other things. And that's why we're having a lot of different cases of various, uh, very sick animals that have been, ca- because of the diet, they're being forced to eat. It's very unnatural.
2: It's against the law. It's against the law. Yeah. Anyway, my question on some kind of history channel or something, I saw, which really helped me, uh, is when these small animals or any kind of animal is uh, attacked by a predator, mm-hmm. that there's a natural chemical that is released mm-hmm. into them that uh, puts them in, a, in, a, in some kind of... Um, uh, Unfeel, where they don't feel anything, and yeah. they get a euphoria yes. And so it really uh, is not as painful as we would imagine.
1: That's right. That's actually true. And to repeat what she said is that uh, small animals, especially in the rodent, rodent world, which was a, one of the main sources of food for other animals, um, there is a natural... Uh, physical process that takes place where when they are attacked, when they are about to be killed, they actually, the brain is giving off, the hormones are being given off, that certain chemicals then will dull their system, will make them feel less resistant, well, more resistant to pain, they won't be, they will be numbed by it, and so they are, this is part of the shock process that they are going through, and they will in fact be killed in a way that they're far less painful than it would be otherwise, and so this is actually something built into them to be able to allow them to minimize their pain and suffering when that's Taking place, and that's absolutely true that if with these smaller mammals. Um, one time um, last year, I had my uh Um, brand new kitty cat, which I had rescued from our parking lot. I was taking him for a walk um, over in Mojave National Preserve. And uh, he was on his leash. It was one of the first times he'd ever been out walking on his leash. There was nobody around, so we were having a good time out in the middle of the desert. And uh, I was looking around these rocks while he was uh, there, and he was kind of nosing around one rock. And so I kind of pulled the rock back to see what he was looking at. And immediately, this little mouse runs out. It was actually a pocket mouse. And he immediately runs out My cat grabbed him instantaneously in his mouth before I could even grab my cat. He was just instantaneous. And I immediately, I said, phantom, no. And I grabbed him and he immediately let this little mouse go. The mouse dropped to the ground. He had not been injured, which I checked later. There was no puncture. There was no damage to him whatsoever. He was totally intact. He had been in my cat's mouth for about three-fourths of a second. He fell to the ground. He twitched once. He keeled over and died. He had a heart attack, whatever, something he was scared to death, literally. And uh, then I was able to identify him, see what he was, and that sort of thing. And it was, in fact, the same species of pocket mouse which my previous cat, back in 1992, first caught for me and allowed me to identify me when I was in Joshua Tree National Park. And it was a very strange thing that I have these two cat attacks killing the same species of pocket mouse in Southern California. And apparently they're really susceptible to attack because they both died without any damage being done to them, and so it's a very strange thing, but that is another example of how these animals very quickly succumb to death in order to minimize their pain and suffering in this process. All right, up there in the middle uh, with the microphone. Um, I was wondering if
2: you've ever heard the theory that the carnivores were created with those teeth, but it was used to feed on roots.
1: I've heard the theory. I don't really find... Okay, the question was whether or not predators were created in the Garden of Eden with the teeth that they have now, but those were able to eat vegetation and whatnot. I don't really find that to be too credible because the teeth structure is too well built to puncture and kill and that sort of thing. There are other species alive today which are vegetarian, which eat those types of things, which have different teeth structure than that. And so... the, The teeth that predators have really are built to kill other animals. And so really, when we look at its surface like, okay, it's the teeth are very obvious and and change much from a cow to to a lion. But internally, there's actually a lot more differences than just what you're seeing on the surface. The intestines are quite different. The internal anatomy of the stomachs is quite different. The acids used are quite different. And so there's a huge variety of major internal differences besides the teeth structure which have to be changed. So I feel that they might as well all be changed at once. There's no reason that the teeth needed to be done from the original Garden of Eden when the intestines have to be changed too. And so I feel that no, there was a certain full recreation that took place at the time of the fall, where physically and mentally, all of these predatory animals had to be changed wholesale in order to be able to allow them to function in this new lifestyle, which they didn't before. So I have heard that theory. I don't agree with that theory. In the middle.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. but from a physiological standpoint, we actually do digest those things. It may be a lot slower process Mm -hmm. and the body doesn't absorb the nutrients quite as well.
1: Well, that that was my point with meat. Yeah. um, We do digest well, that's right. No, my point is that with the with the meat specifically, we do digest the meat, but we're not doing it as efficiently because our stomach um, is not um, built for meat, and our intestines are not built for meat. We pass it through our intestines at much too slow a rate for the proper digestion of meat. You need to get meat out of your body quickly because it's rotting inside your body. And so, a carnivore has a very short intestine to get that bo- through its processes very quickly, very rapidly. Where a vegetarian and has a very long convoluted intestine which will process every last possible nutrient out of the grass or the the fruit or whatever specific type of diet that particular animal is built to eat. And so yes we do digest the meat but we're not doing it as efficiently, we're not getting as much nutrients out of it as we should. It's rotting in our colon before it has a chance to get out of our body and so it's causing us health problems inside of our body before we have a chance to expel it. And so all of these reasons are why I was saying it's not as efficient as a vegetarian system system that's built into it. When it comes to the fungus, now this, I am purely going on information that I have read about fungus and nutritional uh, things. You're breaking down the fungus in your intestines, and you're breaking it down in your stomach to its component parts, but the nutrients inside those things are not being absorbed properly into your body. They are passing through your body. Now, if that's not true, as a nutritionist, I I, I have only read that. I have no personal knowledge of that whatsoever. I've only come across that as a written source that you are not using the nutrients of a fungus diet at all. It's simply passing through you. It tastes good, it breaks down, it's expelled, but the actual chitin itself that you're making up is preventing you from properly processing the nutrients of the diet of of, of eating a fungus. That's all I know about that. If a nutritionist can say otherwise, I will be happy to listen to that.
0: There? So there how we
1: ah, OK the question is we have canines in the terms of the fact that we have four teeth that are larger than the other teeth around us, but they are not canines in the sense that meat eaters have canines. When we look at the canine teeth of a meat eater, we are seeing extremely long teeth compared to the other teeth around it. And the canine teeth in a meat eater, whether it's a cat, dog, whatever, when we're talking about mammals, when you get into other animals like fish and whatnot, it's very different uh, tooth structure. We are seeing a distinctive difference with the teeth structure of the canine compared to those around it. When we look at a purely grass-eating animal, a cow, an antelope, whatever, they have grinding teeth, uh, molars and whatnot, elephants. They are built to grind teeth. They're not used to cut and tear like the canine teeth of a predator. And so they are actually shredding and grinding and putting this into a pulp that they will then swallow down. So they do not have any of the canine teeth whatsoever. Then you look at primates and a lot of primates are a separate category from cows and they're separate from lions and they're separate from bears and whatnot because they have a different teeth structure than either one combined the teeth structure of a primate and this includes most monkeys not all but most monkeys and all all great apes which include the orangutans and the um, chimpanzees and the gorillas and the bonobos All of these guys have teeth structure, which are a combination of the two. They have grinding molars in the back of their mouth, which uh, crushes and shreds the plant material. They have cutting incisor teeth at the front of their mouth, which cut into things uh, in an upward, forward uh, motion like that. And then they have these four quasi canine teeth which are located at the corners of the front with which they can then bite into fruits, vegetables, various different plant materials that are available to them in the particular habitats. And so they actually have this kind of weird hybrid um, tooth structure that does not fit a cow and it does not fit a lion. It's this halfway thing where they have these canine teeth. They are called frugivores like I mentioned in the presentation and they are built to eat fruits and vegetables and plant material that require a lot of mashing and a lot of grinding but also require biting and require a little bit of tearing and cutting of the surface of the skin of a fruit and whatnot and so actually when we look at our teeth structure it is a frugivore tooth structure completely different from any vegetarian animal and complete uh, from any grass-eating animal and from any carnivorous mammal and so that's why we are definitely a frugivore. And this is one thing um, that hardly anybody knows about because they always say we're, a, we're a carnivore because we have canines. No, we're frugivores because we have this halfway version of teeth that only fits this specific group of animals to which we are a part with the primates and the monkeys. That's a good question, though. Right in the back...
2: A while ago, about some um, animals, some rodents, which uh, before, before being traded, um, killed, they were like numb or something. Like mm-hmm. yeah. I'm wondering if humans are
1: reacting in the same way before being um, There have been stories. Okay, the question is do humans have the same uh, physiological response to near death experiences, such as the rodents do? Um, there have been stories of people who have had um, this sort of reaction to a thing where they aren't feeling as as much and then they survive and they describe it and that sort of thing. There are stories like that. Um, I would say it's not as um, it's not as important or not as not as uh, prevalent with humans because we are such rational creatures with a little rodent doesn't understand anything that's going on it's about to be killed it's uh, trying to avoid death and it's it's not going to make it Um, rabbits have been known to have this kind of thing as well where they kind of go into shock when they're being killed Um, there's not too many examples where really credible examples where we can point to it with humans and so I would say probably not and except um, I do believe God gives special blessing for martyrs and whatnot under certain circumstances that uh, he gives them protection from the flames and you know, they're not feeling it as much. They can still be singing at the t- as the fires are burning them up. And honestly, you can't do that just from a physiological point of view. You cannot be singing a hymn while you're being burnt to a crisp. And so I believe that's something that God has given to certain people that are faithful to him and have been killed for it. So I think it's more of a God's providence in, in specific circumstances than it is a physiological thing applied across the board to humans as a whole.
0: Now, in a, in a world in which you have just herbivores and you don't have uh, any predators, mm-hmm. you have this spike in, in population of the yes. herbivores
1: Well, I would, okay, the question is, uh, uh, what would happen to the ecosystems of the earth before predators were introduced to uh, um, prevent them from spiking and crashing in the cycle that we see around the world? All right, so the question with that is, is when were the predators created um, underneath God's power, like I maintain? Um, At what point did they get transformed from vegetarian animals into meat-eating ones. I would say it was within a very, very, very short time after the fall. I see no reason why there would not be a special recreation when Adam and Eve are expelled from the Garden of Eden. Death is now occurring. Leaves are falling from trees, as Ellen White so vividly describes. and there was no reason to wait for a thousand years, 500 years, 20 years. There should have been a recreation right at that point. We have no evidence whatsoever about that. We have no spirit of prophecy, anything whatsoever to give us any kind of an indication of that. But uh, that seems to make sense and is logical from our point of view. Um, The the animals before the fall would have been reproducing and would have been filling the earth. If there had never been a fall, then we would never have uh, any kind of sin or death or decay take place. And so the question is, if that had taken place, what would have prevented them from overpopulating and becoming, swarming the earth and turning into this huge disastrous cycle? Well, number one, there was no death, for sure. Um, Ellen White is very clear about that. The Bible is clear about that. There's no death um, in the Garden of Eden, so there's no old age issues. There's no disease, um, falling down dead because you're 90 years old, anything like that. And so the question is, and this applies to humans as well as to all the animals, at what point would God have said this population has enough and no more is needed to be reproduced? We have no idea because we've never seen a world like that take place. Other planets have that issue because no other world has fallen. And so all the plants and animals and people on every other world has reached that point at some point. And so the question is, um, does God just say... That's it for reproduction, and that species is no longer able to reproduce. Um, We don't know, but that makes sense, that there would be a time where God just physically changes the animals so that they do not have any further population growth, and therefore there's no ecological catastrophe, and all the plants that keep growing are exactly the right amount for that particular type of animal that eats that plant. That is, again, Purely supposition, because we've never seen it. we've never had a chance to watch Eden develop long enough to get to that point, and we've never had a chance to see other worlds, but it has to happen if we're not going to have animals either being killed or dying from natural causes or from us killing them or whatever, or from God killing them. There has to be a limit on population growth of one form or another. So it's purely theoretical. how can that work?
0: All right. Mm-hmm. And I think that refers to the ability of the creatures on this world to reproduce. Okay. I think
1: other yeah. creatures
0: in other worlds may not have reproduced. Mm-hmm.
1: They were made that number from the beginning, and they didn't sin, and so they didn't have a problem. Okay. Um, the question mm-hmm. is, the statement is, is that uh, those uh, other planets that never sinned were different from ours because they, we are a creation of a new order, and that a set amount was made on other planets, and they never needed to have this kind of thing going. That may well be true. I have no evidence for or against that whatsoever. Um, I'm only looking at our planet and what might have been. Um, All of that is very interesting speculation that may well be true once we get up there and figure out how things actually work in the rest of the universe where we didn't muck around and have a mess down here. But um, I cannot even begin to speculate about that. That may well be the way it is. I don't have a clue.
0: Genesis, in particular, we get our first mention of the Amalekites, and then uh, in 1 Samuel the Amalekites are supposed to be eradicated in totality, which did not happen. But in that eradication of the Amalekites, all the domesticated animals or anything under the control of the Amalekites, dog, cat, otherwise, was supposed to be eradicated. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm gathering because the Bible specifically says, do not amalgamate. Then the Amalekites were amalgamating right and left, and I'm sure in Genesis chapter four, that was taking place too. So how would that um, affect the creation that we see today? I'm not aware of any Amalekites running around, but I'm sure there's some Amalekite genes running around even today. So when since the animals were not eradicated at that
1: time, wouldn't some of that be prolificating to this day? Okay. The uh, question is about the uh situation in the Bible where the Amalekites were um, needed to be wiped out. They weren't, and everything with them was should have been wiped out because they were so wicked and uh the problems that they caused. Um there's two issues here. Um the first is is that um When Ellen White's talking about amalgamation, and this is a whole other topic that we're probably not going to get into too much tonight here, But um, when she talks about amalgamation, she talks about the amalgamation of man and beast and the way that they were before the flood and whatnot that uh, was taking place. She has different statements depending on context that if you look at with those specific statements that some seem to be referring to a man-induced amalgamation of animals, a man-induced amalgamation of people where they're causing these various developing breeds to take place. And then there's other references where she's talking about how animals just by their reproduction and changing of their their own um, considered to be amalgamation and so it's very difficult to know exactly what she meant in some of these statements because some of them appear to be somewhat vague and kind of contradictory and so it's hard to really know what she's meaning by it I know she knew what she was meaning but it's hard for us a hundred years later to understand her on these very few statements and so when it comes to animals um, animals all have inherently built into them the ability to adapt to circumstances. They have the ability to change slightly to fit their Uh, various conditions. This is called microevolution and is not the evolution that evolutionists want you to think is what they're talking about. They use microevolution as a way of propping up their theories of macroevolution. And now macroevolution is when a mammal develops from a reptile, when a bird develops from a reptile, when major changes take place to various things, macroevolution is taking place in their theories. Microevolution is when a bird gets isolated on an island and develops different colored plumages from the bird on the next island. They're basically the same bird, one has a little bit different beak, one has a little bit different plumage, but they all basically function in the same way in different niches. And so microevolution is demonstrable everywhere. You can point to a lot of animals everywhere that are showing right now microevolution. Evolutionists take microevolution and say, look, here is a perfect example of Evolution. They don't call it microevolution, they call it evolution. And they say, because of this proof that it is taking place right here and you cannot disprove it, you creationist, therefore you have to believe that this is all true, including what they um, are meaning by macroevolution, even though they won't call it that. So this is actually a very um, interesting, and I actually wrote an article on this that will be coming out online pretty soon, how the two concepts of micro and macroevolution have been used by evolutionists to deceive us into thinking that it's all the same thing started with darwin it's been going on ever since and so this is something that animals all have built into them by god the ability to adaptive radiation fit into various little niches all around it so that is, in and of itself is not inherently evil and so there's a lot of different animals going around that never were before the flood because they have changed slightly. The polar bears are never before the flood. They never could have survived because there was no ice for them to survive on. That doesn't make them inherently evil. That just makes them slightly different. But there are other cases of amalgamation, what you're talking about, where something has been made grotesquely out of sight of the bounds of nature. And this was going on, Ellen White says, before the flood with animals, with people and in fact has been going on in our laboratories to this day. When we look at the genetic engineering and the ways that we are t- creating jellyfish genes into rabbits so that they can glow in the dark, we are definitely seeing signs of amalgamation that have absolutely no business existing in this world. When we have um, pigs that have human genes inside it so that we can raise pigs for slaughter so that we can kill them and take their organs out of their body and then insert them into people so that we can try and have organ transplants. We are looking at amalgamation taking place in our world today. And this is a clear example of the stuff Ellen White said is absolutely no way uh, allowed to be going on because we're taking an unclean animal and turning it into this thing that we're putting into ourselves and contaminating our bodies with. And so all of this kind of stuff is going on in laboratories all around the world. And uh, what we're talking about here with amalgamation is a real problem that is not just something from pre-flood times, but is actually real now. Now, whether or not we still have amalgamated genes from the um, uh, amalekites and all that sort of thing going on today, that might well be true. I don't have any knowledge of that specifically. I've never studied that particular aspect of it. But uh, that is something that uh, very well might be possible. Now, the killing of all of their animals, along with the Amalekites, as part of the eradication of this people is another issue entirely. Because when we look at this taking place, it actually happens in a lot of cases. When we look at Achan, when he was condemned for his sin in the children of Israel, lots were cast. He was stoned. But you notice not only Achan was stoned, but his Wife, his servants, his family, his cattle, his sheep, everything that he owned was destroyed, even though Achan themse- himself was the one who had committed this crime and made it possible for this to happen and made this uh, situation necessary. Now, was, there, was the cow of Achan guilty of stealing? Of course not. He had nothing to do with it. Was the wife guilty? Who knows? We don't have any idea. But were all the servants guilty? Certainly not. And so innocent beings were being killed at God's command when this took place. And so that was part of his will at that time. He wanted that to happen. That doesn't mean they will be lost. The people who were killed at that time will have the same chance of salvation as, as anybody else, but they were given the first death at that time. The animals killed with the Amalekites were not necessarily evil amalgamation forms. They were killed because the sin of the Amalekites needed to be cleansed from the land. And God made it very clear, children, men, women, the whole kit and caboodle, all the animals needed to be cleansed. And that was a purging, a symbolic purging of what needed to be done for the continued growth of Israel as a holy people. And so it's not necessarily because the animals themselves were amalgamation, but um, it may well be with the people. That's very possible, but it certainly nece- uh, not necessarily was for the animals themselves. So it's a very complicated issue you got into there that we, is worthy of study, but I think there's more issues involved than just the amalgamation issue, whether or not the animals and people were amalgamated. All right, so we're needed to finish up at this point, and so it's uh, quitting to be quite late. I thank you very much all for coming to uh, this late meeting and staying this long, and we thank you very much for your support.